Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you very much to the organizers of the uh, Warwick Investment Forum for uh, inviting me to speak here today. As was said, I've got several jobs with uh, Credit Suisse. Uh, I run mainly the emerging market equities business for this time zone. So that's the uh, business from Johannesburg up to Moscow, and that includes the Middle East and Africa. As you heard today, I was invited to speak about investment opportunities in the Middle East and Africa. I thought that may, might be quite difficult to do, given that I'm running the public equity side of the business. And one of the problems is there aren't many public equities that are traded in Africa in particular. There's more in the Middle East, and I'll talk a bit about that. Uh, so what I thought I'd do is, is spend a little bit of time talking about what Credit Suisse does in emerging markets, which will come across as a bit of an advertisement, and it is, but I think it is relevant for what the last part is, which is talking a little bit about Egypt. Uh, the reason I'm going to talk about Egypt is I think it's very topical, it's very interesting, it's very important, and I felt that I can't offer you a lot of insights into the best investment in Zaire, but I can offer you some insights into what's going on in the markets and what people are doing at the moment around the crisis in Egypt. So I thought that might be more interesting. My apologies, my apologies if that's not the case, um, but please, please feel free to ask me questions. Um, so first of all, Credit Suisse in emerging markets. But, uh, by the way, my background is I used to be, uh, I've been 25 years in this business. Uh, I've been a salesperson, I've been a strategist, I've run businesses, I've worked on Europe, I've worked on global markets, and I've worked for about 16 years in the emerging markets uh, with three different firms for 10 years now with Credit Suisse. Uh, this just shows you we've got a lot of offices in a lot of countries. And that is important because you do need to know what's going on on, on the ground. And what an equities business does, and what we do, is try and through, we, we facilitate the investors. So we, if you like, are the guys that are in between the people that are making the investment decisions and raising the money, and actually giving them a mechanism to get that money into the market. So we need to be on, on the ground, and a lot of investment is entailed in that to facilitate that process. Um, missed out from there, we actually have a, an office in South Africa, that's not on there. Our East European businesses in Warsaw, that's not there either. Uh, but for me, I've got uh, 25 people in Moscow, uh, 20 in Johannesburg, um, 10 in Warsaw, and then for the area I'm supposed to be talking about, there's 10 in Istanbul, 10 in Riyadh, uh, 10 in Dubai. And I've just come back from Riyadh and Dubai uh, earlier on this week. That's where I've been until last night. Um, what do we want to do? I'm putting this up because this is a very, very integrated business, and I think mission statements in some ways are very cheesy. I think they're cheesy, uh, but they actually matter. Why this is important is I put this thing about best execution. If you are a regulated investment fund in the UK or the US or throughout most of Europe, you are required to get best execution, i.e. you have to deal in the right size and the right volume. Uh, the lowest price, the biggest volume on behalf of your clients. And we need to be able to do that. And the way you do that is if you access all the investors that could be involved in the market you're talking about and all the products that they could be involved in. And that way, liquidity can flow from one product to another product and you can use your capital to facilitate that, but you're not just standing up and saying, hey, you know, you want to buy $10 million worth of this, yours and you've got no way of uh, clearing your risk, you actually know that over here someone wants to do a similar investment or someone else uh, is doing something else in a different instrument, 
or you can talk to an investor in a different country. So we set it up in that way. Um, we have good research, we have that. We focus on markets that are bigger with domestic investor client bases. So in the Middle East, where I'm supposed to be talking about, yeah, we're local in Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia is not even in the frontier indices. It's not in the emerging market indices. It's very hard to invest in, but it is big. You know, it's quite a big economy with a lot of quoted companies, so we're local on the ground there. We're local in Dubai. We actually are not local on the ground in Egypt because actually there isn't a big institutional investor base to talk to. It's quite a lot of retail, but it's not a lot of institutional investors. And I'll come on to that later. London's a hub. Leveraging and out of global equities, one bank type stuff at the end. Again, you know, it's an advertisement, but it's interesting. If you've got a business like Credit Suisse, we're a global investment bank and we're a global private bank. Probably one of the world's leading private banks, we'd like to say the leading private bank. There's a lot of crossover between talking to the world's richest people and talking about a lot of the quoted companies in the world. So that's something we leverage. If I was here from HSBC, or city, I'd be saying we've got lots of bank branches everywhere because they're the world's leading commercial banks. We're not. Okay, let's try and move on. Does it work? Yes. You know, we're number one in most of this. We do a lot of business for international investors. So these stats basically say if you deal in these markets, then you're most likely to deal with Credit Suisse more than anybody else in secondary equities. Uh, that's stats from market. And at the bottom, McLagan. It's some estimate of what market share do you do with institutions. So we do the leading market share with institutions in the US and the leading market share with institutions in Europe. Uh, we also do a lot with the local guys, but not as much as, as we do with the internationals. Okay, that was part one. Part two, why, and I put frontier markets. The reason I use frontier markets rather than Middle East and Africa is frontier markets, a marketing term, markets that are behind emerging, uh, a, a term that's getting quite a lot of attention. People would like to invest in the next growth area. If you add it all up, most of this is in Africa and the Middle East, and most of that is in the Middle East. Why would you want to invest there? Just answering the question, well, either there's a lot of resources, so a lot of gas, a lot of oil, or there's a lot of people. So, you know, as we put here, 14 percent of uh, Sorry, 4.5% of global GDP, 12% of global population. I guess there's clearly a bet, you know, if you've got more people, they'll get richer, you'll be able to invest with them, you'll make some money. If they've got a lot of resources, you'll be able to exploit them. I don't think it's that hard. I don't think you think it's that hard. I think everybody knows that. That's not really the issue. Uh, will the growth continue? Yep. I mean, if, if, if the trends, if, if the uh, past is a guide to the future, that's what happened with the emerging markets. They outperformed over time. Uh, will the frontier markets get bigger? I guess they could do. Who thinks they will? Well, the IMF does. So if you believe them, things are going to be okay. They're going to grow quite fast. And the problem is, as I said, you come on to, well, can I invest in it? And the answer is no. If you're in publicly traded markets, broadly, the answer is no. What you can invest in, and this just gives you a snapshot, this is Morgan Stanley's uh, frontier indices, and it's a breakdown of them. And I'm looking at this in a very small slide, but I think it says, where is it? I can't see it there. Let me try and make it bigger. I think it says that about uh, half of the index is financials, 
and then you go through some resources. And I think it says that most of the index is in the Middle East, and there's bits of pieces in Africa. Nigeria is relatively significant. It's about 70% in the Middle East and Africa is in the frontier markets. But you'll see the biggest market is Kuwait, and that's banks and holding companies. I'm not really sure, and Kuwait is a pretty high-income country I'm not with not that many people. Uh, it's got resources, but I don't really think it's the essence of uh, frontier, if you like, but that's the biggest one in the index. And you go through the rest of the Middle East, and some of the biggest countries are not actually in there. Um, Saudi Arabia is one I've just mentioned. Uh, Egypt is actually in the emerging market indices. So it's not very exact what you can do there. But if you see frontier funds, some of them will be investing in this. And if your money's there, you perhaps ought to check whether that's what you want to do. And some of them might also be investing in sort of proxies quoted in London or Toronto, which mainly invest back into resource opportunities in Africa. Okay, back to us. So where have I just been? I've been in Riyadh, uh, and I've been in Dubai, and then you can see a picture of Egypt there. We do actually have, um, strangely enough, we, we have a private banking office in Cairo, which the uh, official opening was on the 19th of January. So um, the COO who works with me on the Middle East and also on South Africa with me, he's been very, very busy making sure that office is, uh, is I guess, uh, under control. Let's go on to, uh, yeah, Th this I put because I think it's, uh, and maybe I, I, I'm not being fair to you. If I'm on the outside and I think, what does an investment bank do? Until you get on the inside, I, I don't really think you, you get a good idea. So what I thought I'd put up is a list of funds that we deal with. So first of all, active long-only funds. These guys, I think it's quite well known. These are people that are picking stocks do do their own research, try to work out whether they'd rather invest in uh, you know, one bank rather than another bank or in the resource sector or something else. We'll have telephone conversations with us, talk about our research. Maybe their dealers will give us an order on the phone and off we go. So that's what people understand, I think. They are one part of it, but they're divided into guys that are specialists in the Middle East and North Africa. There's quite a few of those. Some reasonable amount of money. There's funds that are 100 million, 300 million. Biggest would be about 500 million. In the great scheme of things, it's not that much money in emerging markets that are in the hands of the specialists. Might be emerging market funds in the EMEA region. That's emerging Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Not nearly as big an area as uh, Asian investment or Latin America. Dominated by Russia and South Africa. But there could be funds investing there. There could be global emerging market funds. Uh, or they could be generous, global funds, global sector funds. I used to run our global sales effort. There's a number of funds, $50 billion funds in global money. They might have one or two investments here, but they'd need a lot of liquidity, a lot of liquidity to make a difference to their performance. They might need to have a position, if they've got one position and you're running $50 billion, you're unlikely to be running more than 100 stocks. Maybe you're only running 50, so that's a billion dollars. It's not many stocks here that you could buy. So you go down. These small guys, relatively nimble, the meaner guys, they, they can buy smaller capitalization. Passive funds, index trackers. So there are trackers in Frontier and GEM. Uh, they broadly emulate the index. So your Frontier index tracker is a Kuwaiti fund. Right? That's what it's doing. 
active hedge funds. This is, for the Middle East and the markets we're talking about, these are quite important. The reason is because these opportunities are outside normal indices. You have to be quite aggressive. You have to move quite fast to, to operate there. We've got a number of pretty big clients in hedge funds that are either long-short funds uh, who are knowledgeable and generally there all the time or macro funds that will come in and out depending what they see the opportunities are. So they're there. Passive funds, exchange traded. I put that in Del Delta One just means that they're buying underlying equities just through another instrument, but there's no leverage there. There's no optionality. So this would be an ETF, an exchange traded fund, or you're just simply buying through a swap so you've got someone in the middle to do it for you. But basically your return is one-to-one -one with the underlying equity. It's important there because, again, as I'll come on to with this crisis, you'll see all of these guys have got different pressures on them as a sort of crisis and an and a interruption goes through. Uh, us. I put up the beginning. Best execution. Customer facilitation. Market suddenly starts going down. Our biggest clients ring us up. Hey, you know, Guy, you know, you said you're with us all the time. Uh, we'd like to sell a lot of things. We'd like to sell them now. And the market's closed. Uh, oh, right, fine. Well, that's us. We'll buy some. We'll take that risk, we'll facilitate it, that will have an impact on us, and that will have a role on after that. Um, Backbook trading, proprietary trading is much more the pure where an investment bank is effectively running a hedge fund of its own. We don't really do that. We trade around our flow, but we don't really run that, but there are proprietary funds, but you could just think of them as hedge funds. Corporates, they're active, but obviously their investment's much more long-term in nature. So I'm just going to go to Egypt now. So you know, let's just uh, let's just start. What is Egypt in terms of importance for emerging markets, global funds? It is the second biggest market cap in Africa after South Africa, but it's way, way, way smaller than South Africa. 2.6% of the EMEA index, less than 1% of GEM. I'm mean, going to be about half percent of GEM, second largest in Africa, as I said. Uh, banks, telecoms, real estate, construction are what you buy there. It is on a premium valuation, so it's PE, ratio of price to earnings, higher than average, um, price to book higher, returns are lower. So by implication, investors already think this market is going to grow faster on average than everything else. Otherwise, why are they paying a premium for something that makes lower returns than average? So that's what people thought. And I've done this as January. This is sort of where we were. I look back at a piece of our research from just two weeks ago. Uh, very strong in the first week of this year. What you find is there's a cyclicality as there is to everything. Investors go away. They have their Christmas holidays. They come back. And they think, yeah, this is what we want to do this year. All bets are on. And they decided they liked Egypt. It's about the third or fourth best performing market in the first week of uh, 2011. Then there's various stats we look at. You can measure buys and sells for, from people like us. Very few sells are on the companies. Uh, and we looked at the weighting of funds where we can see weight, and it's overweight. Doesn't trade that much. $200 million a day is not that much. Um, Saudi is the biggest trading market in the, in the region, trades well over a billion a day. So that's 
before Egypt happened from a financial perspective, this is you coming in. Uh, second thing, I, I just pulled out our strategist's view, probably a bit unfair to him. He was overweight. This is why he said he wanted to be overweight. Strong economic growth, acceleration in industrial production helps Egypt. And you can run through the factors. You know, It all looks pretty good. We recommend you to be overweight as well. A little bit of caution, a bit worried about inflation rising. High public sector debt is a problem. Are there risks associated with political succession? You know, things in Tunisia were just hotting up, so that's in there. Valuation is high, and it's inverted commas overowned. It's a bit of a strange expression, overowned, because you can only own what's there. But in terms of active money, you can see where have people placed their bets and where haven't they. So this is not a great environment to be in if something's going to go wrong, because everyone thinks it looks good. All this is saying is, at the start of the year, some of the factors I said. Uh, the market's up 7% in the first week, reaches a high, I think, on the 6th or 7th of January. It's my first box. We're already getting some demonstrations in Tunisia, and then we see the situation with uh, uh, Bin Ali leaving the country. And as you go through this, and if you could read it, what, what's quite interesting is there's no real reaction for quite a long time. There's certainly no global reaction. You can look at, I put the SPX, the S&P 500, just as a proxy for global markets. It's sort of steady to up. Oil prices aren't going anywhere either. And Egypt doesn't go anywhere until suddenly people sort of wake up and domestic retail in Egypt sells off and the market goes down 6%. And when a market goes down 6%, people notice. And you stop getting a thought of, well, and, and the talk through that time, and you'll remember that there was talk about, could there be contagion? Will this spread to Egypt? What's going to happen? But broadly, the consensus of the experts was, no, it's not going to happen. And this is where you've got an issue. And this is, I think, one of the big, big issues you've got in investments, that some things nobody has any insight in. Nobody, relatively. Mubarak's got some insight, but I don't think he's that active in the equity market. Or at least I don't believe he is directly. Maybe he is. Maybe he is, and maybe he's playing a bit of a game here. But other than that, what is quite clear through this is there's a lot of people that are expert in politics, in the region, and what is, but they don't really know what's going to happen. And when you get that situation, then suddenly you're going to get the situation that if you're a hedge fund, and you're a very disciplined hedge fund, you suddenly think, I don't know what's going to happen, I'm out. Very rational. And that's really why we got, a couple of days later, market plummets 12%. Because the hedge funds that were alert, were tuned in, and decided very rationally, I don't know what's going to happen. And the starting point is, everything's hunky-dory, said, I'm out. Uh, I would say there were probably four or five of those. That's all. Because the market's not big enough. And the turnover's not happened. You've got one day of 200 million of turnover, and that's not going to be all international hedge funds. That's going to be other people as well. It's not that much money. Here's just some of the big shares all going down. Uh, GDRs, it's Global Depository Receipt. So this is, for those of you who don't know, this is just um, you take the underlying share and you turn it into something that is listed in London and can be traded by more funds. So it's a depository receipt. But it's really one-to-one -one with shares. These things trade about $7 million a day in total. So again, you may think, as we go into when the market's closed, I can trade here. It's not really that much going on compared to where you started with an overweight position. 
this is a comment from our private services desk. Just an internal email. Uh, I'll let you read it. Big selling flow, private services desk. So two things happened with the hedge funds. One, they got out. The others, they got short. What's interesting is after only a couple of days, the borrow's gone. There is no stock you can borrow. No one's making it available. It's used up. So technically, one of the reasons the market stopped going down is there was no more stock to borrow to short. I'm pretty sure if we've run out, so have other people. And what happened, and I think this is sort of interesting as well, it's the rest of the timeline. I'll come back to that. This is the, uh, uh, an ETF. ETF, this is an exchange-traded fund. It should track the Egyptian market one-to-one -one because it's an Egyptian exchange-traded fund, but it doesn't have to. It's actually selling at quite a big premium. If you look at... These are sort of intradays up and down, but you look at the last three or four days, I've actually got this index coming up. Uh, the, the Egyptian market is actually closed. So this ETF is going up, the market is closed. So what people are doing is they're, basically they're taking a more positive view. So this is when things felt much more positive. You know, Mubarak is gonna go, we're gonna have, uh, you know, we haven't yet had the dreadful scenes that we had in the past couple of days. We've got a euphoria building. It's all going to be okay. I want to buy while the market's weak. I think it's quite interesting. Again, there's only around $10 million a day traded in this last couple of days, and normally it trades practically nothing, which is those very low bars. And this, finally, this is, again, experts. This is Credit Suisse experts. I'm not saying they're not bright. I'm not saying they're not smart. What we try to concentrate on is not so much of what is going to happen in Egypt, but are there some rational bets you can take that have been shown up by the dislocation in Egypt? Because you might have insights there. You know, our trading books, for instance, they're flat. We don't know what's going on. We just don't know. So why, why should we be participating? But other things, Saudi, which had a 6.5% drop, and I was in Riyadh, and I'll tell you, you, this might seem very flippant, but here's one flippant thing. There are no big squares in Riyadh. If anyone's been to Riyadh, there is just huge roads that go backwards and forwards. There's no squares. If you want to gather in Riyadh, I don't know where you do it. I mean, that sounds flippant, but it isn't that flippant. It's extremely difficult to organize. Now, there's all sorts of other reasons why Saudi may be different or may be the same. You know, it's a much richer country. It's clearly the regime in Saudi is looking at what's happened in Egypt, and clearly people are comparing what might happen, and clearly, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a monarchy. But it is very difficult to demonstrate. I, I, I do tell you that. It's very, very difficult to cross the road in Riyadh. Okay, but look, again, I, I don't want to go through these in, in, in so much detail, but what started to happen once the shock of the market going down is running through is people started to think, okay, what are the hedges here? Should I be buying oil? Will the Suez Canal close? How much oil goes through the Suez Canal? Well, it could be a lot. No, no. in the end, it's only 10%. No, I don't think I'm that worried about that. Stocks are high. So you get oil goes up, and then it comes down again. Uh, what does it mean for food? And I think this is quite a big thing. We've seen a lot more buying of wheat crops, white crop, uh, rice. Probably seen the indices going up very strongly. This is um, clearly a key, key risk in terms of Egypt. It's a huge food importer. Not only that, food is a huge part of the cost of living, especially, obviously, if you're poor. Now, this, is, this is a big issue. One of the things that governments are trying to do, and again, you would have read this, is if you are a dictatorship, if you like, 
one of the things you want to do is keep food prices low. If you see prices going up, you actually build that you want to buy forward more just to make sure that you're not in a situation where you don't have enough. So we are seeing a lot of investment going into uh, wheat, going into rice, speculation or investment, but it's definitely there. Um, and I think that's quite rational. Credit default swaps, other assets, what's the exposure? This is what we've got going on now. Uh, what happens next? Well, I don't know, but I, I'll tell you a couple of things. One, with the trading that we've had in the past week and a half, broadly, nothing has happened. Anyone that is in Egypt invested is still in Egypt invested because there's just been no turnover to change it, except if you were one or two relatively fast hedge funds. If you're a MENA specialist, Middle East, North Africa specialist, you have to invest in the Middle East. So your choice is sort of keep the money in Egypt or move it to Abu Dhabi, UAE, Saudi in some cases, smaller markets. But Egypt actually is the biggest market, so you do have a problem there. So maybe this is good for the other markets, but maybe you guys in the room that own these specialist funds think, mm, I don't really know what's going on here. I'll, I'll pull my money out. And maybe the market stays shut there, so what they do is sell other markets to just raise cash for their investors. That could happen. If you're um, an index fund, well, you're just there. You, you hold what's in the index. But this market's been closed for a week now. Uh, it's not unprecedented for markets to be thrown out of the index because they're no longer as liquid as they were before. And what happens then if you're an index fund and you're not in the index, well, you can't be in the index fund. So they're going to be big sellers. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, we've looked into this, and I think there was a precedent in Pakistan that it was thrown out of the emerging market indices, went into the frontier indices. And you know, a, a lot of people rationally in investment say, I can't pick stocks, I'm just going to put my money with an index fund. But what could happen if this market stayed shut for three or four weeks, and if restrictions were put on taking your money in and out, it's likely that you could see something happen and Egypt would no longer be in the emerging market indices. Then you would see a big pullout of money coming through, quite a big technical thing going on. Um, macro funds, they're, they're just going to think, well, do I have to be there? They're, they're just going to go somewhere else. So I, I think they disappear. Us, we're there, you know, we, we trade these markets. so. We're always in a situation, how can we keep facilitating our clients? How do we balance our risks across Egypt, across other markets, and so on? So we'll still be there. Okay, and then the ETFs, the Delta ones, these are hedged with the underlying equities. But at the moment, you can't trade the underlying equities. So you're running quite a risk between one asset and another asset. So we have to look, look to ways of mitigating that risk. That's what we're doing at the moment. And then we'll wait to see whether the market opens again. In summary, what you see going on in the markets is a very small part of what is going on, and there's different instruments that are being played. There's different players with different short-term pressures on them, and overall, they are trying to position themselves so that they are investing where they have a relative insight rather than where they have no insights, and I think that's, that's the key to it. The insight that I think is not really worth that much in terms of any of this at the moment is emerging markets are longer-term growth because they've got more population, they've got more resources, and they're poorer than the rest of us. That's sort of given. 
what you've got to work out is where is that reflected in prices and where isn't it? And you've also got to work out where can I actually make a judgment on that and where can't I? And at the moment for me, the big macro call of investing in Egypt or not, you can't. But if anything, given what we've seen has changed and given that broadly if I look at the factors that we went up from the strategies, what's good about Egypt, you know, that we're going to get a recovery, domestic recovery, that's going to be put off. Inflation risk, that's going to be worse because, you know, clearly food prices are going to go up and so on. Guys are already over-invested and they've had a shock. I would think it's pretty unlikely that the market bounces straight back up. So if I had to, I'd be a seller on what the ETF says. Where the market is, I'm not sure because it's closed at the moment. So I think I'll close it there. And